number of weeks ago, we were doing something as a staff um, over at the Urquhart's house, and, and my wife was away, and so I had to, I had to, I won't say wrangle my three girls, but <laughs> it's getting tougher all the time. Anyway, um, so I got them in my truck and uh, was was heading over there, and I have a five-month-old, and she fell asleep about three minutes away from our house. So I'm thinking, man, what do I do with this? Because, you know, you, you want them to sleep. And so I, I thought, okay, well, I'll just drive around a little while. I'm willing to be late and endure the social awkwardness um, for her to have a little bit of sleep. So I started to drive around, went down to Rudder Parkway, and uh, was just driving around all over trying to give her some time to sleep. And and I, I'm thankful that I did that because it, it was about the time I was working on some of these texts, and I drove by a church um, that had a reader board, because we all have reader boards. I don't know why, by the way. I mean, nobody looks at them, but <laughs> to this time, I actually looked at the reader board, and here's what it said. Quote, just do the right thing. Just do the right thing. Now, what would you say to that? You might look at that and say, well, that's good. Gosh darn it, somebody, somebody ought to tell this world to start doing the right thing for crying out loud. We've got enough people doing the wrong thing over and over. Somebody needs to stand up and take care of business. Well, maybe there's some truth to that, but, but what are the people driving by here? Well, what are they feeling as a, as a church looks at them and, and says, just just do better. Now, I, I in no way question the motives or heart or intention of that church. Like I said, in some ways, there's something wonderful about standing for what's right. But at the same time, there was something about it which grated on me. I began dialogue, dialoguing in my mind, is, is, that, is that our goal? Is that our goal? As, as Christians, that, that we just, is that our goal for non-Christians? Just, if they would all just start doing better stuff, we will have accomplished what we need to accomplish in this world. Started asking the question, can these people even accomplish what we're telling them to? Could I accomplish the right things when I was not saved? None of you knew me. Let me give you the answer. Nuh-uh. What message are we sending about what we really value? The passage we'll look at today deals with two sides of this issue. It calls us to things that are right in this world. It calls us to, to things like obedience, but it also orients us to the truth of our own ability, and I would say the truth of our lack of ability. We only have ability in God. Verse 12 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, 
so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The first thing I think we, we grab in this text, and we'll go back through, is this. Your Christian walk should be one of work. Your Christian walk should be one of work. Here's where that comes from. Therefore, my beloved, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, also in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, before we look at that, I, I want to reorient you to this passage and what's actually going on here and some of the context, some of what we've seen thus far. Paul has just finished talking last week, if you were here, about some of the highest Christology, the doctrines of Jesus Christ that we can get. He looked at his, his incarnation, which meant a humbling of himself from the exalted status of divine glory to come and be born in humility, to live in humility, to die in humility, even the shameful death of a cross. But what's significant about that passage that we looked at last week was that, that Paul's concern was not just to teach to the head. He was trying to get to the heart of his people. That as we look at Christ, it has to affect who we are and what we are and, and how we interrelate with each other. In chapter 2, here's, here's what we read at the beginning of all of that. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than, your, than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The focus is on how we're acting with one another. And I could roll it back even further, and I think we should, to chapter 1, verse 27, which says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. This is the context into which this comes. It's in light of all of this that Paul can say, Beloved, as you've always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The first thing I would say is this. As we come to this idea of our Christian walk being one of work, we have to understand that, that all of this is in response to the gospel. All of this is under this broad banner of, of live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means you're showing by your very life the weight that the gospel has in your life. A couple of weeks ago, we were down with some brothers at, at lunch. We, we do a monthly lunch for, for guys in the church, and those are, those are good times. We have, we have a good time, and, and we don't just have lunch. We talk about things that are going on. And this week we were talking about obedience. And uh, obedience is a Christian, but, but then the, the conversation got bumped a little bit. And guys, Dave, you remember this? We talked about obedience as, as kids when we, were, when we were growing up. And a couple of these guys, it was awesome to hear, said, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't feel this oppressive hand of, of my father. It, it wasn't as if we had to obey because we'd get whipped. Some people have that story no doubt. But these guys, it was so encouraging. They said, you know, for us, we saw our dad working hard, and, and when he came to us and asked us, hey, I want you to do this, this, and this, they said, 
we felt honored. We wanted to do what he asked. In other words, these guys weren't made to obey. They were motivated to obey. And that is so different. And this is what we're dealing with in the gospel. That as God calls us to obey, it's out of a love for him. It's out of a worship. It's out of a response for the greatness of what he's done. And this is what we see here, I believe. This is what we see throughout the New Testament. This has been my continual burden from this pulpit. It, it, it will continue to be that, that joy and worship in the Christian life as we glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we soak in what he has done, it impacts, it affects what we do. Your Christian walk should be one of work. Look at this verse again. Therefore, my beloved, <coughs> excuse me, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. First thing we should probably do here is just address the elephant in the room, which is, many of you likely just heard, did Paul say that I'm supposed to work out and earn my salvation? Is that what Paul said? Is that what Paul expects me to do? And actually, this isn't the case at all. In fact, Scripture is very clear at this point. You do not earn your salvation by good works or by anything you do. You do not merit what God has given you in Christ. Amen? Here's why. Ephesians 2.8. This is also Paul, by the way, both of these verses. For by grace, that is God's unmerited kindness toward you. That's what grace means. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Oh, well, I did a good job, though. I, I brought that about somehow. No, no, no. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Oh, but maybe I didn't. No, no, no. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. In Titus, he says, when, when the goodness and love and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. No, Paul does not mean to say work for your salvation. He means work it out. So, so look at what this means. Verse 12, beloved, as you have always obeyed, now work out your salvation. And here's what I want you to see. If, if you look at that verse and you sort of bracket, not only in my presence but much more in my absence, if you bracket that, look at what Paul's saying. Beloved, as you've always obeyed, work out your salvation. And what's going on here is Paul is laying these two things next to each other. As you've always obeyed, that's obedience here. And now he's saying, work out your salvation, which means working out your salvation is an obedience driven by the very gospel of Christ. That's what working out this salvation is. It has nothing to do with earning it. If you want to walk down that road, you are in great danger because you won't. Paul's saying this, this working out of a salvation it is, is really the result of what God has done in your life and how you now respond to it. Your Christian walk should be one of work. It, it, it should look like a gospel-driven obedience. You say, well, obedience in what? Actually, Paul gives us a couple here. Verse 14. What is your walk of work going to look like? Do all things without grumbling 
questioning. Let's, I just want to take this slow. Let's take this slow. Let's take this together. This is where, see, there's a lot of skill in being a pastor, okay? You're about to see some of it. Do all things without grumbling. How many things are you supposed to do without grumbling? Church? See, I thought only pastors had these kind of skills. This is... Do all things. Now, hang on, because I know there's some of you um, who are waiting for me to explain this away for you. Okay? <laughs> I get that. Because pastors do that, you're like, I hope he brings up the Greek that says that doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean. Do all things. Now, let me, let me orient you to what's going on here just a little bit. When Paul says, do all things, first, that's a command. You say, well, I don't like being commanded. Well, part of your gospel obedience, your gospel response, is to do what God commands you to do. Okay? It's very different, and we'll look at that. It's very different than on your own trying to work up your salvation. We'll see that. But God actually calls you to things. You're his people, and you're supposed to live holy in this world, and that is a reality. So God does call you to things. God commands you to things. Here's one. Do all things without grumbling. Okay? That's a command. The reality, though, is that this is a command for all of us. All of us. Paul looks at a community of faith and says, do all things without grumbling. Why would he do this? Probably, probably, because we're prone to do things with grumbling. Grumbling, by the way, is an activity that we probably all have seen. Okay? Um, some of you are educators, a lot of you are educators, and, and, and you may have seen grumbling. From children. Oh, some of you are parents, and you may have seen grumbling. Some of you are employees, and you just do grumble. Okay. Here's here's what grumbling is. So you are invited, commanded, exhorted to do something, and you begin doing it. And as you begin doing it, there's some stuff that you want to say to the world say, well, what do we want to say to the world? Nobody knows, because you mutter them under your breath as you go. You know that literally, literally, that's what grumbling is? Grumbling in, in both Hebrew and Greek is, uh, scholars believe that it's the type of word that the very word sounds like grumbling. The Greek word, I can't even pronounce it, it's like gongerlon or something. That's what it is. You're like, oh, well, that makes sense. That's what grumbling is. You just walk off and you're just muttering under your breath. It, it, see, here's, here's what, let's get some context here. Because the biblical context of this isn't actually in the New Testament, this idea of grumbling. It actually finds its source in the Old Testament in the people of Israel. Paul is essentially, essentially drawing a comparison between you, the people of the church, and the people of Israel and how they acted in times of old, look at this in Numbers chapter 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. 
Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Well, maybe they said it like this. Would that we done? I don't know. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is it that the Lord is bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now, here's the thing. I, I even had these verses uh, written down to talk about in terms of grumbling. And then I asked this question. Well, what was going on back in Numbers? I don't know if you guys read Numbers, like, a lot. But I thought, well, what was going on in Numbers? Here's the reality. In Numbers chapter 11, chronologically, we don't think of it this way, but do you remember Mount Sinai where, where the people came and God makes a covenant with his people? You'll be my people. I'll be your God. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this blessing. You'll have offspring. And here we go. This is our covenant. This is like a marriage covenant. Okay? In chapter 10 of the book of Numbers, chapter 10, they set out from that mountain. I just read to you from chapter 11. I don't know if that means anything to you. Okay, well, what was happening in chapter 14? In chapter 14 of Numbers, just a little while later, they had sent spies into the land to check out the land that someone had promised to give them. They said, oh my gosh, it's an, it's an amazing land. There was a problem. We're, we're going to get hurt. So God makes a covenant with his people. They grumble. God shows them the blessing that he's going to give. And they grumble. And I've got to tell you, this morning I was up in my office thinking about this, and I said, this is this is." I get why Paul would draw this comparison. Because one is, he's made a covenant with us. He's, he's, he's joined himself to us. The other is, I'm showing you where I'm going to fully and finally bring you. And isn't this a parable in one sense of the Christian life that God has, has covenanted with us? We just celebrated it this morning, the new covenant. And he's promised us good in, in, in the final estimation when he fully and finally brings us to his presence. And so we live just like they lived in the middle of this. And what do we why Paul in 1 Corinthians, listen to what he says. This is an extended quote from 1 Corinthians 10. He says to the church there, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the spiritual food and all drank from the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased where they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things, these things, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down and ate to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not, we, we must not, put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble some of them did 
and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That is astonishing. That Paul would draw that kind of conclusion to such a great degree that Paul thinks this is such an issue for the people of God that we might grumble. And, and the reality is I don't think that this is, this is only a literal grumbling like I'm talking about. In some sense, isn't this a grumbling of the heart? Isn't this a complaining as we go? Isn't this, isn't this a constant questioning? In fact, I think that's what's going on. Look at this. Do all things without grumbling and questioning. This, that's not a quisitive questioning. That's, that's an, an argumentative questioning. That's a, I don't want to really do this. See, the context in this thing is very important. Paul is primarily saying these things to those of us who, who live and, and love and grow in the body of Christ. And this is clear from the entire flow of the letter. Paul says at the very beginning, my, my prayer is that your love would abound more and more. He prays in the first chapter that that he might hear that, that they're standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. You see this corporate picture? Then he prays that they'd have the same love and be in full accord and of one mind and, and look out for the interests of others. And this is the context, you see? This is the context into which the grumbling command comes. It's vital for us to understand. Paul's goal is to call us as Christians to come together, to work together, to advance the gospel together without grumbling. Peter would write this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And then he says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Your Christian walk should be one of work, and this means obedience without grumbling. What's the result? Paul says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That blameless and innocent, don't think that that means sinless. That means with regard to this grumbling, as you find yourself obeying, there will be no cause for blame against you. You'll be doing what God has called you to do. But notice where this goes. You may be children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Lights in the world. This imagery might ring a bell for you. And there is a sense in which our salvation and then God's empowering us for obedience renders us light in a dark world. If you trace the theme of light, and you guys are going to talk about this this week in your groups, okay? If you trace the theme of light through Scripture, here's what you're going to find on how God talks about light in the Scriptures. He talks about it in terms of His presence, His holiness, and His revelation to mankind. His presence, 
his holiness and his revelation to mankind. And Paul's, what, what Paul's acknowledging here is that we live as light in a dark world. We shine as light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And that is true. We are in a crooked and twisted generation. And I'm not a doomsdayer, okay? I'm not that guy. I don't have big posters on how bad it's going to get before things start exploding and world rulers come. I don't, I don't get into that. That's not my point. In fact, I want to say that, that, that you are lights in the midst of, of a dark, twisted generation. And it excites me that we're in such a crooked and twisted generation. Why? Because the darker it is, the brighter light shines. Amen? So you're praying it gets worse. Well, maybe. Maybe. Because the people of God will rise. The people of God will rise. This shouldn't sound out of the ordinary to you. You've all read your Bibles and you've read things like this from the lips of Jesus. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, this is the point. I, I love that he says, you're in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. We were, we were uh, Friday morning, we are praying, some of the brothers here at the church, and um, one of, one of the guys was sharing about uh, here's the context I work in I, I, I work in some pretty rough environments and, and it's hard sometimes and, and I got all excited because I don't, I come here and Corey just keeps getting more holy and it's like well it's not, it's not dark here I, what are you going to do? So, so I'm excited I live vicariously through this brother and I'm like man that's so great you get, you get this opportunity to, to work in these environments, and do you realize what God could do through you, and do you realize the opportunities that you have that I don't have? Darkness should excite us because he calls us light. But look further. This will, this will come together for you. You shine as lights in the world. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. This, this literally, if you, if you look at this, you shine as light holding. It's, it's by holding fast the word of light. How do you shine? This is how you shine. And there's a d debate here about what this means, holding fast to the word of life. Some people think, well, this means um, that we hold to, to sound doctrine, which is all over the New Testament. Yes, that's true. Other people think that, that this shouldn't be translated holding fast to the word of life, but holding forth the word of life. I'm convinced from the context this is exactly what Paul means to say. That you shine in the midst of a dark, twisted, crooked generation as you are holding out to the world. Yes, you're holding to sound doctrine, that's wonderful, but you're holding out the glory of the gospel of Christ. And it looks glorious. Jesus, when he was talking about us being lights, just a few verses before that, and I believe these are connected. He says this, Blessed are you 
when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he says, you are salt and you are light. The prophets were the people holding forth the word of God to the nation. I think Paul's saying, your light's in the midst of the crooked generation as you hold forth the very word that brings forth life for people. Your Christian walk should be one of work. That means obedience. That means living in the body of Christ without grumbling. And that means holding out words of life and blessing and forgiveness to this world second thing that I think this text says is this. Your Christian walk should be one of trembling. It should be one of work, and your Christian life should be one of trembling. Now, I know that sa- sounds odd. Here's, here's where that comes from. Verse 12. Therefore, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling. fact of the matter is, Paul calls us to obedience. That is clear. He calls us to work out our salvation by obeying in response to the gospel. But this is the manner in which it is to be done. That we would fear and tremble. What we should probably understand is that when those two words, fear and trembling, are used together, they are in other places in scripture. It's it's an idiom. It's, it's a way of saying something. It's an expression, in other words. It was an expression that, that was used as people came into the realization of the very presence and work of God in this world. That they realized God is doing something, and as they realized this, the only response was, was fear and trembling. It's, it's a reverence. It's an awe that God is among us, and he's active. In 2 Corinthians, this is odd, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, this is, he's writing about Titus. He says, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. You say, well, that's, that's odd. Were they afraid of Titus? I thought Titus was supposed to be a good guy. Wasn't he like a gospel worker? Yeah, he was. In fact, the text around that says that he came to them to bless them, to benefit them as a church. Why were they afraid of him? They weren't. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, it says that God had put in the heart of Titus to come to them. When Titus came, they weren't, fear and, they weren't afraid and trembling because of Titus. They were fear and trembling because they realized God was at work for them. In the Old Testament, even in Jeremiah, God talks about how he's going to renew his people and bring them to his holy city one day, fully and finally. And he says that they should fear and tremble because all of the good and the prosperity that I bring. But you're bringing good. Why should we fear? Because you realize it's God. So we're to work out our salvation. We're to obey and we're to walk blamelessly, and we're to hold out the gospel. 
with a recognition and a reverence for the mighty work of God in that. Look again at these verses. As you've always obeyed, so now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, verse 13 gives you the reason for what went before. You're to work your salvation out. You're to walk in obedience with fear and trembling because you are realizing that God himself is at work in you. This gives the ground for this. You you say, well, why is God always commanding things? Even in the New Testament, he commands me all the time. It seems like every time I come here for a sermon, you're telling me this is what God's calling you, exhorting you, commanding you to do. Why does he always do that? Isn't he mean? No. Because God is grounding those commands in this. I'm at work. command us and call us to things because God is working in us who are in Christ. I love how this fits together. Look at verse 13. This is, in verse 12, he's, he calls us, he says, work out your salvation for it's God who works. Same word. Work it out. It's God who works. And what does God's work in you do? Both to will and to work commands you to work, tells you God is working so that you'll work. There isn't some, some pie chart on your obedience. Okay? This isn't a financial breakdown where, where you get the graph and you say, okay, well, I did 47%. Seems like God should do the 53. Or maybe you're very arrogant and you're like, I do the 53 and God can bring up the rear for me. Maybe you view this more like a spiritual kind of a matching grant, right? Where if you do well enough, maybe if you obey enough times, then God will say, fantastic, you met the minimum requirement. I will now help you. That's not what's going on. God isn't divvying up responsibilities. He's... He's telling us, I think, that, that, that when, we, when we go, when we run, when we live the Christian life, when we obey, when we exalt Christ, when we glorify God, when we do all that, what we ought to realize is that there is someone working in us. We're to realize God himself is, is at work before and under and in and through everything that we do for the glory of God. And I know that this is a little weird. Some of you are saying, well, well, how does that look? Or how, what about this? Or I don't know. I don't have answers to all of those. I can't fully tell you what this looks like, but I can tell you what this text says. This text is talking about God at work in his people in such a way that two things happen. Number one, their will is affected. Look at this text. It's God who works in you both to will. Think of this as your want to. 
as you walk through this world, you have certain desires and, there, and there's things that, that, that you love that get you fired up and there's, there's choices that you make. This, this will has to do with you seeing something worthy and making a decision to pursue it. And what this is saying is God is at work in you so that you have a want to. It is a dangerous road. And I've heard people say this in the past, that, that I really want to want to. That should scare me. Because I'm told that God is at work in me that I, that I will want to. Second, God is at work not only for the prevailing desires of my heart, but, but to, to do, to work for his good pleasure. Now this isn't merely the want to, this is the very ability to carry out what, what you can't carry out naturally. the understanding we ought to hold. We realize that God is at work in us. Let me give you a few snapshots of this from Paul's life. In Romans 15, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience. Colossians, he says, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, the grace of, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it wasn't I the grace of God that was with me. How do we put all this together? The other night, I was reading, how many of you have read Ezekiel this week? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. I wouldn't have either. I'm in a class and they make me. How do I put all this together? I'm thinking about all this and saying, well, so really this is God's at work, but so I'm supposed to obey, but God's giving me this work in my heart so that I will obey. And then, and then I ran across this. I don't know if you know that the Old Testament actually has to do with you, but here's the goal. Here's what Ezekiel says in that book. God speaking of the time when he gathers his people, he says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. See, here's the glory of what God has done. That, what Ezekiel was talking about, is the new covenant. It's the very thing we celebrate at the table of the Lord. Part of the new covenant is God doing such a work in you that you now want to and that you do walk in obedience and follow him and love him. But it's not perfect, but I still sin. I don't have the answer to that, but it should be growing, and, and it is growing. As you see him leading you, as you see him empowering you, this is the work of God, and this is why he can say at the beginning of Philippians, Paul says, I'm sure of this, I'm convinced of this, that he, he, God, who began a work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So your walk is one of obedience, and it's one of trembling, because you realize that God himself 
Is it working here? Amen.